0: Thanks everyone for coming to this mushroom session. Um, so like I said before, my name's Ella. Um, my farm's called Little Bunyip Farm. So this is a, a little bit close to home because I previously grew mushrooms um, <laughs> and uh, it didn't quite work out for us for a number of different reasons. So the the idea of context is really um, important in, was really important for us in making the decision to stop growing mushrooms and just focus on growing microgreens instead. Um, but I think our three stories are sort of linked because all of our mushroom growing started at roughly the same time and we kind of all found each other by accident and via social media and via the Wollongong Farmers Market website of like, oh, someone just got Money to like grow mushrooms for the market. Who are they? <laughs> um, yeah, so I think it's um, it's definitely a crop that has a lot of demand in the market. Um, we definitely had no issue selling the mushrooms that we could grow when when my partner and I were growing them. Um, and these two have have taken it the next step, and they're they're producing mushrooms. Um, and they've got a really great story to tell about some different backgrounds coming into this space and getting going with a really quite a tiny farm and, and, and where it can go. Over to you, Michael.
1: I should have been setting this up while you were doing the introductions because currently there's no oh, right, yeah. picture. Wait. Hey. There he is. It's, mm. on a, it's on a post-it right here. All right. So, uh, my name is Michael, uh, Michael Taylor. I started a little mushroom farm called Primordia Mushrooms. Um, There we go. Um, Seemed like a really good idea. (laughs) So, so I've titled this, oh yeah, I've titled this talk a couple of different things. So, I thought I'd call it uh, Mushroom Farming. That sounds like fun. Um, Or Mushroom Farming, seemed like a good idea at the time. There's another good one. (laughs) Yeah, probably here. There we go. Wait. Hey, there we go. Um, Or mushroom farming, how hard could it be? Um, So I come from a science background. Um, I was a university lecturer, so in practical terms, that meant I really knew nothing about anything apart from this one tiny little thing. Uh, I had a microbiology background, so mainly bacteria and fungi, strangely enough. Um, so I was using them for research, going out into the field, identifying Australian native mushrooms, using them to regenerate the soil and break down herbicides and pesticides and all that kind of thing. And incidentally thought I can grow these things as a mechanism to get students and other people into the lab and interested in fungi, grow them on coffee grounds and shredded up exam papers and all kinds of things. It was a fun thing to do. Um, turns out that I didn't really love academia that much, so I quit that, um, wrote a business plan to grow mushrooms, uh, met people at the farmer's market, got some funding to actually make this thing into a small-scale farm, um, started it out, worked out how to do it, um, and kind of went from there and sold my very first mushrooms in September 2017. Um, I probably don't need to do this bit, but for the most part, Australia imports pretty mo- pretty well all its fancy mushrooms, all the gourmet ones. If you go to a supermarket or a market or whatever, they'll mostly say product of Korea or product of China and those kinds of things. So we don't, we don't have a massive, really thriving, vibrant gourmet mushroom industry across Australia with lots of people with lots of know-how that get together and chat and do all that kind of thing. For the most part, it was kind of us. Um, with not masses of really hands-on practical experience that you could draw upon virtually everything. It seemed like everyone learns is from YouTube videos and books and forums and that kind of thing where the experience uh, is going to be from a North American perspective or from a Chinese perspective um, or a Korean perspective or that kind of thing where the materials are different and the climate's different and the circumstances are different. So it was a lot of take some of this and mix in a whole lot of guesswork and make mistakes along the way. Um, The other nice thing that is often very enticing about growing fancy mushrooms is it seems like anything will work. You can grow them on anything. Um, Coffee grounds is great. Paper and chickpea residues and banana hulls like husks and all these everything. Anything you can think of that was a plant in theory, that's true. In practicality, that means you probably spend a lot of time trying things and you realize it doesn't quite work like that. Or maybe, or only at certain times of the year, or all these kinds of things. So, once again, masses of potential. And the practicality is you try these things out and you get 1% of the way, and then 1% of the way, and 1% of the way until you, you finally hit upon some combination of things that works. Um, so I'll give a real quick potted background for how you grow these things, um, because that probably informs a lot of everyone's experience here. So I'll do the two second version, um, which will explain a lot of the other processes and bits and pieces. Um, so you start with a Petri dish with a little bit of sterile mushroom tissue or spores, and that grows. That's like you'd see in a lab or something like that. It's just nutrient gel and mushroom tissue. And it you, you have it culturing and it's sterile. You generally mix it into a grain of some kind and that's called spawn. Uh, essentially it, it acts as the seeds so you can use a range of different things. This is where the complications come in so you can use wheat or rye or barley or sorghum or corn or any grain for the most part that won't go mushy and fall apart. Mix in the mushroom tissue, it consumes all that and you've got sort of Uh, ready mushroom material that you can mix in with something bigger that it'll actually turn into mushrooms. So there's your spawn. There's what you're going to use. In this case, I've got a a, a bale of straw. Uh, I spent a lot of hours sawing up them by hand because that was the cheapest way to do it. Mushroom growing is a really good way to get fit because you're carrying things and sawing things and doing it all by hand. Um, Then you grow your mushrooms and you start all over again. Nice and simple, no problems there. That's the, that's the kind of easy process. So tissue, sterilize a whole lot of grain. Mushroom tissue goes on that. You sterilize or pasteurize a whole lot of straw or other bulk material. It all gets mixed together and you give them the right conditions to grow mushrooms, which is sort of like warm and dry-ish for some of the time until they've consumed their material Wet and cool-ish, and the mushrooms pop out because it's like winter. That's the really simple nuts and bolts. It gets way more complicated than that, but that's the sort of how you'd go about it roughly. In terms of an actual practical, how that looks, um, you you spend up, you end up spending hours and hours and hours and hours and hours washing and sterilizing grain because that's one of the most valuable resources. The better the quality of that mushroom tissue, the better of Everything else goes if that goes wrong, if that gets moldy, if that gets bacterial, if it smells like sour milk or all kinds of awful things, then you start again, so you spend a lot of time washing and sterilizing grains. You get very familiar with pressure cookers um, that 's how it that 's how it should look. Um, for the most part though, that step that step with the saw gets replaced with trying lots of different things. You get your material, you need to cut it up to the right size. Whole bits are sometimes too long, small bits can get all waterlogged and mushed together and you don't have enough air exchange, so you try things like sawdust and it turns out it's the wrong sawdust because pine won't work have to use hardwoods oh we don't have lots of hardwoods in south australia it's really expensive to import in sawdust which seems mad who would ever buy sawdust in but you think maybe that's a good idea i tried rice hulls Uh, i tried um the leftover after chickpeas had been harvested i tried what else um Hay definitely doesn't work. Hay turns into a horrible, stinky mess. So once again, it's a massive process of experimenting to to actually get it to do anything. Um, You need a spare bedroom that you need to turn into a lab. Um, You can make all your own spawn and make all your own Petri dishes and you save a lot of money or you can buy it in from someone else, which ruins your bottom line, um, but it means it's not your headache anymore. Or you can give up a room in your house to turn into into a lab. So that's a rough lab setup. Um, essentially it just consists of a box to sterilize the air. It's just a big filter that pulls all the other mold spores and stuff out and some working space and then all of your grain that you've sterilized that you mix mushroom tissue in with. you need something to sterilize it with. This is, a, this is one of those steps where everything gets mixed together. So I, I decided I would build myself essentially a steam generator out of an old uh, 44-gallon drum that I put an electric heating element in and then all these tubes coming out that fed into a big tank and I could fill the tank with low-pressure steam um, to actually make this thing run. So that meant that I could sterilize or, in this case, pasteurize massive volumes of stuff like hundreds of kilos at a time. You need somewhere to put it so it all grows in the dark happily for a little, for a little while. Um, so you end up with bags and bags and bags and bags of, in this case, straw, mixed with a little bit of bran. Seemed to work relatively well. <laughs> that was the garage, so the cars get, got parked on the street. Oh, yeah, I should say, this, is, this all occurs uh, in my suburban backyard house. I don't have a garage or a spare bedroom anymore. I try not to publicize that I have a lab in my house. It's not really, doesn't have good optics on that. Um, and then finally, you actually get some, uh, some mushrooms. Um, this is, so this is my how it all started out process. I thought buckets were a great idea to grow mushrooms in. Um, seemed like a wonderful thing. I'll talk more about mushrooms in a second. But in theory, you get stuff like that. And stuff like this, like wonderful, bizarre looking things. So that's lion's mane mushroom and reishi mushroom. So medicinals that people desperately want and um, are happy to pay for when it's been grown locally. Uh, yellow oyster mushrooms and shiitake mushrooms. N- another thing that people get all excited about and, and desperately ask questions about. And I had, had no problem selling them for, if I could grow them. Um, there's more shiitake. There's some enoki uh, on the left there. they quite little delicate mushrooms. Um, blue oyster mushrooms, They're you've probably seen regular oyster mushrooms in a, in a supermarket before, but they come in all wonderful colours. Pink oyster mushrooms, um, where one of the nice things about at least having a few people working with you or around you or near you is that you can trade cultures. So thank you very much for the pink oyster mushroom culture. Um, and then you have the wonderful day where you actually pick them all, put them in a basket, weigh them and then sell them. Um, that's actually way satisfying i never expected that bit to be so good when you actually have something to sell um so we'll start digging into the the complications and the things that made it such a trial and error kind of experience reusable containers seemed like such a great idea low impact you wash them you use them again you're not generating masses of waste they're self-supporting so you don't need shelves you can just stack them all holes in the side mushrooms come out empty them wash them do it all again Um, didn't quite work like that. I, I ended up doing nothing but washing buckets all week. So it was one of those things where from a practical point of view, I didn't realize that was going to end up being my life was scrubbing buckets. I didn't actually grow mushrooms. My job was scrubbing buckets and sometimes mushrooms happened a lot of the time. Um, and contamination was totally unavoidable. uh, like it happened, all the time, depending on lots of stuff. Uh, The season, uh, if it got too hot or your materials had been in some way contaminated, they'd all go moldy. I, for some reason, I think I was the only one that had the problem with this bright orange fuzz, whatever the hell this was, would cover everything in this super, super, super fine bright orange moldy fuzz. And the second you opened it up, the air would be full of clouds of orange mold spores, just poof just covered in these spores, which meant everything I was wearing had to be pretty well boiled. Uh, Their room had to be wiped down. The floor had to be wiped down. Any buckets or containers or bales of straw that were nearby, they had to be thrown away, like everything contaminated. So I went through a fun period of working out how the hell to deal with that, um, which... From a practical point of view, they don't show you that in the videos. You just have to work it out by doing. Um, Some materials just inherently seem to contaminate. If the nitrogen content's too high, they turn into like bacterial awfulness. Hay was one of those ones. Straw didn't have any problems with. Hay would turn into like sloppy, brown, liquefied. um, I don't even know. It, It smelled like... You know fish sauce it was like that, except sticky, so that got that covered everything um, so that was that was always a fun process of working things out. Um, if I could grow them, they were really wonderfully easy to sell um, at the farmers' market here was great, like dealing with people face to face was one of their wonderfully buoyant things. They were such an interesting product, and everyone really seemed to want it that working with the farmer's market and being welcomed by that community and then the people who actually go there was was great. I, that was a lot of fun. Um, more, what what I mainly ended up doing, because it, was, it worked really well, was I had a couple of big restaurants and wineries that would take probably about half of what I did and the other half went to the farmer's market, depending on the week. Sometimes a wholesaler would desperately want a whole lot of everything and I would sell some to them, but That wasn't quite as satisfying and I realized I didn't get the sort of visibility that when I was at a market. Um, Down to the nuts and bolts of it, I'll give some sort of some smooth figures. This is uh, lots of things all conglomerated together to give you an idea of what you could expect if you went down this path, like how things kind of look. There's lots of caveats on this and, and I'll kind of explain them as I go. But there's a few constants that happen, like you have to sterilize grain and that takes a certain amount of time. Uh, You have to pasteurize material or sterilize material. That just takes a certain amount of time. There's some inflexible components that you can't really tinker with too much. Um, So... I kind of worked out, this is how it worked for me. I mixed everything by hand. I bagged everything by hand. I moved materials all by hand. And I worked out if I timed myself, that was about how quickly I could do things in terms of mixing stuff by hand and putting it in bags was about 45 seconds here and about a minute there and about 20 minutes here and that kind of thing. So a lot of the following figures are all based on this. Um, This is how much room I was working with. I roughly had four spaces. They were all about the same size, sort of, three metres by three metres by 2.4, so a wet room, uh, an incubation or warm room, a lab, and then a materials handling room. So all in all, probably 60 cubic metres of space, floor to ceiling and side to side. Um, the main thing in terms of working out how much you can expect and if you can make it work is a rough relationship between How much of that mushroom spawn, those seeds, you mix in with your actual bulk material and how quickly you can make mushrooms come out of that. Um, You can shorten that to a degree, but there's a lot of caveats on this. So um, I found anywhere from sort of around about 10% seemed right. If you go any higher than that, it, it kind of works, but it depends on lots of things. You know how I said hay had too much nitrogen and it all went like horrible fish sauce? If you add too much of anything with too much nitrogen, you massively increase the risk that it's all going to go wrong. It invites mold, it invites bacteria, it heats itself up. So if you have a big volume of material, it kind of self-composts. The middle never colonizes. It all goes wrong and your mushroom yield actually goes down. So as a surrogate for it all going wrong, that's a rough figure of if you can hit between 10-ish to 20-ish percent mushroom seeds or spawn in with your bulk stuff, that's probably about right. If you're too far below that, you save money and you save time because you don't have to make as much spawn, but it never colonizes. And if you're too much above that, it all goes wrong. It's probably too expensive. You're probably spending too much time making spawn. You've got too much nitrogen and it all falls over. So, oh, five minutes, cool. Um, So for a rough, typical back of the envelope kind of scenario, um, if you were gonna do 250 kilos of dry material a week, which is about what I was doing, um, you need a certain amount of spawn. That spawn takes a certain amount of time to sterilize. If you go over that sort of 10 to 15%, you end up spending three, four, five days a week standing in front of a stove, pressure cooking, and that just doesn't work. So the, the lower the amount of spawn you can produce, the better unless you buy it in. So the bottom line is under an, un, un, under an ideal, amazing scenario where nothing goes wrong and everything sells and it's all easy and it's all brilliant, you could probably maybe get about 25 kilos a week out of that space I was talking about, 60 cubic meters. Um, so if you sold that all and you take costs out, you're looking at about 16 dollars 15 an hour. Oh my God, that's a pretty good number. Actually, totally doesn't happen like that. On an absolutely uh, like very generous, realistic scenario, you might be looking at getting about $4.50 an hour in terms of stuff coming out. And that's still pretty generous. That's if stuff doesn't really go wrong. You don't spend too much time driving around to make deliveries of say one kilo here or one kilo there because you desperately want to retain customers. Uh, That doesn't take into account the times where you sterilize a whole lot of stuff in a pressure cooker and a jar breaks or a bag bursts and you have to sweep things up or everything goes moldy and you have to throw it all out and bleach everything I and mean, then you don't have a sense of smell for two days, all that kind of stuff. Like, So that's probably a generous estimation of what you could expect. Um, if it does go well, it looks, it looks pretty good. Sometimes it works really well, but I found the main limitations really were down to the churn processes like cleaning and sterilizing and picking and packing and driving and all the stuff that wasn't really high technical input, but just churn. It just had to be done, but it just took a lot of time. Uh, I found the main efficiency gains were through materials handling uh, for the most part. I, Like I said, I was literally doing it all by hand, mixing by hand and moving bags by hand and doing stuff by hand, which is good for keeping you fit, but it's very time inefficient. So my biggest gains were finding ways to make that stuff happen quicker. Um, so in refining that process, I ended up getting my failure rate down from about 80% of everything I did failed and went mouldy up to about 90-ish 5%. If I was really meticulous and worked long hours, you can make it work really, really well. Um, but I found the big, biggest limitation to that was once again, knowledge. It ended up being really material specific. I needed to use very specific blends of certain materials um, and handle them very particularly to make that work. And I worked it out, but it was a lot of note-taking. So I think it's probably someone in earlier in the day said everything's horses for courses. I think that's the case here. You can probably refine it for a particular set of materials um, and it can work, but you probably have to do a lot of experimenting to get there. So scale and viability. I don't think 25 kilos a week works. I think it needs to be bigger. In my very own garage, uh, it's, it, does, it doesn't work and it... I I think my wife probably had about just about enough of not having a spare bedroom and a garage as she could handle. Um, I think there's a minimum commercial scale where it probably could work, which is probably five times as much as I was doing. Um, maybe a little bit more. Uh, and that's based upon, there's a lot of commercial equipment that doesn't come below a certain size. So If you want to sterilize grain, you have a pressure cooker. If you want to sterilize more grain, you either need to buy 10 pressure cookers or a small autoclave or something like that. And they really don't come below a certain size. Same with other things like um, bagging equipment and mixing equipment that kind of thing. There's just a minimum size where you can't step incrementally. You have to step and it's quite a step. So I think there's some trade-offs to be made there, but there is probably a minimum size where it really comes into its own. So For the short slash medium term, I mainly do consultancy relating to mold, which I now know intimately. Um, So that's kind of the journey that I have taken to end up here. Um, I just need to say thank you to a couple of people. The Farmer's Market, longest Farmer Market across the street are wonderful. They support me all the time. In fact, there is even a representative here. They're, they're wonderful people. Hello. Um, the local council has been very forgiving and nice with me and all of my bullshit that they put up with uh, growing mushrooms in a suburban backyard uh, and Flurio Food have helped me out as well. So thank you very much. <laughs>
2: Um, hello everyone. I'm Kirsty. Oh, thank you. Yes, thank you. So um, I don't have um, quite the data that Michael has presented, but a lot of what he said is actually uh, has applied to us as well on our journey. Um, I'll give you a bit of background. Um, my partner and I, have, we've been working together on this business um, for the last about two and a half, three years. Um, we live at Beeteloo Valley uh, in the Southern Flinders Ranges. It's about 220 kilometres north of Adelaide. Um, we have a, a, small property, about two hectare property. Um, and we've just sort of fitted out existing farm in- infrastructure. So we had two four bay car sheds or farm sheds, and one of them sort of has become the lab and the, the workspace and the other one, half of it has become the growth room. Um, so that's that's been quite good other than the the home office we've we've managed to put everything outside um, the laboratory uh, in particular was a was a great move you know setting up a dedicated laboratory I think just really helped um, we've had very very little contamination um, at all with our with our um spawn, which has been good um, We make around about thirty to forty straw um, log bags a week um, and produce about 12 to 20 kilos of mushrooms it's really dependent on the weather so when it's um, just the right conditions and they're just booming along we can we can probably even get more than 20 kilos a week and we're having to produce a lot more straw bags as well so it's just everything just goes faster we spawn we have to make a lot more spawn and it, everything goes faster if it once it get, gets a bit cooler um, it just kind of all slows down so yeah um, my partner, Dean, he does all the the pasteurizing, um, so we've got a, um, a a little boiler that we got from a local beekeeper there's a there's um, a, a lot of beekeepers keepers in the forest nearby um, so he renovated that it was on a junk heap I think got it for nothing, renovated it and so steam pasteurizes the straw just in some big kind of plastic tubs he's He's made a special poker that steam comes out of and whatever so he 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 managed all that side of it which is great Um, he also does all the transport of the mushrooms down to Adelaide Um, I do the lab I do the picking and packing um maintenance of the growth room marketing and the bookkeeping so I I probably spend a little bit more time on the business each week Um, but you know Dean does a lot more work around the property as well he's you know doing all sorts of other things so um just um, talking about the, you know, experimenting with the different substrates and and grains for spawn. Um, I think what happened with us when we first started this is because we were we were sort of self taught through books, um, and we were reading books that were written in North America or whatever. And so they're using, for instance, rye grain for their spawn, or you know, yeah, corn husks or something. I think the bottom line is you just use whatever locally sourced. Materials you can. So our main waste product where we live is straw, agricultural waste, um, and and we have a lot of uh, wheat, you know, in the area. So we just we we source that locally. Um, we did try rye and it was great, but it was a lot more expensive than than just getting wheat. So and we find the wheat works really well. Um, when we first, um, you know, obviously we needed to find somewhere to sell our mushrooms and. Um, There's nowhere near where we live uh, where we could sell them on a weekly basis and you do have to do that. So we applied to the Adelaide Showgrounds Farmers Markets and we were accepted there and that was a great place to start. It was a really supportive um, group of storeholders, um, fantastic customers and we loved it and we made contacts with all sorts of people who we um, still sell our mushrooms to. But after doing that for about a year and a half, getting up at 3.30 on a Sunday morning and packing the car and driving down and being worried about falling asleep, driving home and things like that. Um, We just decided to call it a day for doing that market, which was a a hard decision, but did that anyway. So currently we sell to a produce merchant. Um, So that's a weekly delivery down to Adelaide. There is a monthly market at Warabra, which is about 15 minutes from where we live. And we've just started selling to some restaurants in... um, around about sort of 80 to 100 kilometres from where we live. Um, Unfortunately, in in the actual area that we live in, there are no restaurants run by chefs. So um, hopefully that's one day there will be, but at the moment there aren't, and so um, there isn't much of a a market for our mushrooms there. Dean, just talking about how much time it takes us each week. Uh, this is a really rough guess, and some weeks it will be more, and some will be less. Um, I think I probably work on the business around about thirty hours a week. Um, Dean probably does about twenty, um, but that could be more or less, you know, in any given week. Yeah, autoclave days. I've tried to, you know, make things more efficient, so I'll just do a whole lot in one day, and in between time, I'll just kind of do other things, and, and just keep monitoring it. Um, we have made a, a few efficiency gains to the business over the time we've been doing it, um, but generally speaking, the largest costs are just, there's not a lot we can do about it, transport and electricity, basically, um, uh, are really the biggest costs that we have and, yeah, it's, it's, um, other than sort of moving to somewhere closer to where we sell all, all our mushrooms, um, there's sort of not a lot we can do about that at the moment. Um, by not coming to the Adelaide Farmers Market, though, we have actually saved a bit on market stall hire and and a few things like that. So that's just all that kind of learning that you do in the first little while to try and work out what's what's worth doing and what's not. Um, like Michael um, and Ella, we've we've sort of found out that the scale we're doing it at the moment is is not really viable. Um, we would need to produce a lot more to make it, um, worthwhile. Last year, last financial year, we, which was our first full year in business, we just broke even, which was pretty good. We thought, oh, great. You know, maybe next year we can just make it that little bit better. Um, but of course it's been a really tough year with the weather and we've actually done, we haven't produced as much this year as, as we did in the last financial year. So, um, and that's been, that's sort of been a difficult thing to reconcile really, you know, the, having the extreme heat, um And the dryness kind of means you 're going to have a very cold winter as well, so and all those things the mushrooms don 't like so even though we have a a fogger we 've got a, a a highly insulated growth room and we 've got a fogger in the room to make it humid, but we don 't have temperature control, so um you know we 're a little protected from the extremes of the weather, but still at the mercy of the weather um Michael said he'd need to make the business five times bigger. I said triple it. But, I mean, maybe we we don't pay mortgage. We haven't, you know, so we, we actually own our property. And so I guess it depends on what you need to, what income you need to make. Um, for us, yeah, we'd need to triple the production. Um, but that starts to introduce a need for additional workers and it all starts to get a little bit more complicated when, um, when you're you know doing that sort of thing the bottom line is we're really a bit too far from our market it was just something we didn't think through carefully enough I think we um we have to spend a lot of time actually delivering our mushrooms to the people who want them um so if we wanted to make our production bigger um I think we'd have to invest quite a lot in additional infrastructure, so additional growth rooms, probably a cool room, temperature control, monitoring equipment, a more efficient layout, um, probably a refrigerated van for deliveries, um, and we sort of figure that making this additional investment on our home property is probably a bit problematic, I think someone else mentioned that today, that when you're when you are actually um, running a home business, there's a point where you, you know, do you invest all this in, in running the business from home, but then you're, you're never going to be able to sell the business if you want to stay in that place. So, um, so that's something that, um, has be- become a bit of a problem for us. I think, um, ideally, um, if we wanted to, if we wanted to make it work, we would have to work out another, you know, some, some other operations that sat alongside the mushroom growing business, um, and that's something we're thinking about at the moment. We don't know what exactly that might be. But, um, but yeah, you know, if we could find something that could, could work with the mushrooms, that, that might make it um, viable. The other um, option is to just accept that it will be very, very seasonal and find some other way to earn money during the rest of the time. Um, so that's, I guess, another option as well. Um there are options uh, to run workshops and teach people how to grow mushrooms themselves from home, and that might have a spin-off of people might want spawn or, or cultures to, to do their own home operation, and that's certainly something we could do. Um, we've, we've certainly had no trouble um, growing spawn in our lab, so, um, but we're not really interested in, in farm gate sales or anything like that because you know you can be in the middle of doing something and someone might turn up and they might just want to have a bit of a chat and and that's all fine, but I don't think we've got the time really to do that. So, um, so yeah, we, we haven't started that. A few people have asked us about it, but um, yeah, I think in terms of it of it working, um, we would have to we would, would have to make it a lot larger scale. We'd probably have to be based um, in a city or close to the city. Um, we'd we'd have to have something like temperature control. In the growth rooms, so that we could have a little bit more um, continuity with our with our production. Um, but yeah, it's, I think that's it's one of those things that. Um you can't know till you try. A lot of the, the the literature that you read says, "Oh yeah, grow mushrooms, make money." You know, like I don't. You've probably all seen that one. <laughs> um, and that wasn't the, what motivated us at all. We just were we were looking for for something, a new challenge, and 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 something interesting to do. And and we're just really fascinated by the whole idea of of mushrooms. Um, we have we have found a mushroom that grows that actually grows in our patch um, called a morel, which maybe a lot of you have, have had them. Um, or heard of them and so we are interested in trying to naturalise them on our property. They are very seasonal but they are really high, highly prized by chefs and um, you can earn you know 80 to $100 a kilo for morels. So um, we have man- managed to make cultures and, and spawn and we have um, put some spawn around in different places in the on the property but we need to to make it a little bit more organised, <laughs> and it might take it might take quite a few years for that to to actually come to any sort of fruition. So, but that's something we're interested in in keeping on working on. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's about where we're at. And um, yeah, hand it over to you, Ella. <laughs> um,
0: in keeping with the theme, I might just add a little bit of my own experience because. Um, my business, Little Bunyip, we started off growing oyster mushrooms and microgreens and, I, like, I've just loved hearing those two stories because basically our experience was the same as as these two. Um, we ended up uh, at a point where in 24 person hours a week, we could produce about 30 kilos of oyster mushrooms. Um, that was just the production side, so no delivery or admin or anything because that was the, the greens and the mushrooms combined. Um, but we could only do that for about eight months of the year. So um, Betaloo and Primordia both use steam pasteurisation. We were using lime pasteurisation. And what we found was that in summer we just had trichoderma mould contamination and we, um, we basically fixed that in our spawn run room where we kept the straw logs while they were colonising by installing an aircon. Um, but in the very humid grow room we couldn't use that same refrigerative cooling system. And so as soon as it warmed up, everything just stopped. So when we added that, um, like when we took out those four months of production each year, the numbers just didn't quite stack up. And then we, we found exactly the same thing of, okay, well, we probably need to be producing 100 kilos a week. And what infrastructure would we need to do that? And when we, when we compared the sums, it was far cheaper to build another polytunnel and grow more microgreens than it was to invest in the mushrooms. Um, So that's what we did. And we, um, yeah, that was actually, it was a good decision for our farm. So that's, that was our experience, but there's definitely the market demand there. And um, if you are the kind of person that loves being in a lab and loves the sort of meticulousness of the cleaning and the harvesting and the processing, then it it's, it can be very rewarding, and you know, like looking at your photos, I was like, "Oh, they're so beautiful." <laughs> um, yeah, but I'd like to just open it up. Open it up. We've got twenty minutes for questions, so.
2: No, go ahead. Oh, okay. oh. So the question is how, to, how are we storing them before we take them to market? And how long? Can them? Okay. Yeah. So um, we sorry. Um, we have – I've made um, – I've got some boxes that I've just got from the supermarket. They're, I think they're great boxes. I've made calico inserts for those boxes and I've got a little towel that I put underneath and I pick straight into those boxes and then I just cover them up with another cloth and I just put them straight into the fridge and I, I bought a big fridge only, um, just wide fridge so that I can actually fit quite a few boxes in. Um, I find that I can store them like that depending on the species. Some species store better than others, um, but I can usually store them like that for at least two, three, maybe even four days um, before I, I, I sort of, I usually trim them and pack them um, before I take them to whoever I'm selling them to. So I pack into, for the produce merchant, I pack into compostable kind of oyster. Um, no, what are they called? Those clam, clam yeah. boxes. Um, and, um, and then I put just put them in a brown paper bag with a little sticker on the, the top. And for the, um, for the farmer's market, I also pack them in a compostable container um, and we you know, display them in those containers for the market and then put them in a paper bag. Um, so yeah, depending on the species, it, the, the, when you first start growing oyster mushrooms, I think all of us have done this. You get really carried away with wanting to try all the different species that you possibly can. And, um, which can lead to some pretty big failures in terms of yield. Um, just when you think, you know, someone said, yeah, I'll have 10 kilos next week and you've, oh, but you've made this species and they're not kind of yielding too well. So you do get to know the ones that, um, have pretty good yields um, and I, I'm also very interested in the ones that, that keep quite well uh, and still look really good after a few days. The the pink ones that Michael was mentioning are really beautiful and I can't help but grow them because they're really gorgeous and they taste good too but they've, they're quite delicate and you really do need to try and get them to whoever wants them within two or three days. I, last time I sold some to the produce merchant, Oh we Well, last year we had an issue with the – I went down to the produce merchant and he said, oh, look at these mushrooms. They're no good. And they were the pink ones. I don't know how long they'd had them in the box because there was just this kind of little mushy lump. And I said, look, I wouldn't have sold them to you looking like that. But um, they'd obviously just left them in the fridge and – um, so now when I'm sending down those mushrooms to him, I'll actually message him a couple of days before, I've got a kilo of pink oysters, he'll line up a restaurant that's going to take them straight away and I know then that they're going to get to the restaurant in good condition. Um, so, yeah. So like the white and the pink? Um, yeah, the white ones, are, are the best, um, for storage and, and yields as well. Um, and they, they have a fairly, you know, they're fairly consistent, so, I still like trying all the, all the other ones. I like I like the look of a mixed, you know, mm. tray and whatever. But um, but yeah, just for practicality, I t- I've I've started focusing on those ones. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So.
1: yeah I, very very similar in terms of experience there. I certainly found um, chilling them chilling them rapidly was almost as important as keeping them cold. So I would pick everything, put them into open sided crates. Put them in a in a fridge that I'd dialed the temperature down to, and then once they were cold, I ha- it, it's such a pain in the ass to double handle everything. But some things, once they were chilled, would just last a little longer. But certainly, um, king oysters, shiitake, um, blue oysters, white oysters last pretty well. Pink oysters tend to tend to fall apart. Um, yellow oysters are just so fragile; they just smash to pieces. Um, lion's mane bruise really easily, but if you can harvest them delicately, they're actually pretty good. Um, what else is there? I was growing some, some reishi, um, which are great cause that's just like harvesting bits of leather. They don't, they don't tend to fall apart at all. You can just dry them, pick them and dry them and that's, that's totally fine. But yeah, very species dependent. Um, and once you hit that sort of three ish days mark, it, it sucks to have like open the foam esky or whatever you're having them in and they just they just don't make you proud anymore they just don't look good anymore
2: they still taste good yeah (laughs) Yeah. um
0: i might just add that a really crucial thing is when you harvest them oh yes so so when they're growing the caps are sort of down like this and as they go up and up and up it's when they start to release the spores and once they've released the spores it's like life's over that, you know, don't care anymore. So if you can harvest them just at that point before the cap turns upwards, then the shelf life is much, much longer. And, and we actually had really good success storing them in 10 litre Tupperware containers. And our process was we had a little trolley in our grow room and a very sharp knife and we'd harvest them, trim them, put them in a Tupperware container. And with the with the right type, so that white oyster culture that you've got and the kings, we would get seven or eight days. Bef- and, and then we could sell them and the chefs would still get another week or so. Mm. So that was good.
1: Yeah, harvest, harvest time is ridiculously crucial. And not only that, if you let them sporulate, now everything's covered in spores. You've yeah. got, to, got to clean everything. That can be
0: like you forget to go in the
1: morning and you go back in the afternoon. Oh, great. Everything's, like, everything's covered in a layer of, like, yeah, everything. Yeah, I found it would make my scalp itchy. Like, oh, God, itchy. Anyway, sorry, lots of questions. Yeah,
2: uh, yeah I just wanted to ask about your experience growing reishi mm-hmm. and also lion's name. Like, what the prices for the of medicinal mushrooms for those edible mushrooms? Did,
1: did you ever consider
2: um, just focusing on medicinals, and would that, do you think that would be easier to make a business viable
1: and um, Yeah, so the question was, if you stuck to just the really high-value medicinals and that kind of thing, how would it go? Um so in terms of price being totally candid I mean the import price of dried reishi is about 400 bucks a kilo so I was doing it fresh for 100 bucks a kilo but there's not that many people that there's a few people that want it but you're not going to be selling 100 kilos a week you're probably not even going to be selling 5 kilos a week um it was something that was great because you could pick it dry it put it aside and then sell it as as required um, but certainly the volumes were much less. Lion's Mane I found because it was an edible and actually was pretty tasty. Um, I I could sell a lot more of there was an ongoing demand for it. I reckon that would probably fluctuate with restaurants. I found that I would get a winery who'd go, oh, oh my god, Lion's Mane. And they'd want nothing but that for a month. And and then that would the, the little excitement would leave and you'd need someone new and someone new. There was probably a baseline level of, of regular everyday market consumers that wanted Lion's Mane. And whenever I had Lion's Mane, I would always sell it all. So there was a few weeks where I thought, oh, bugger it, I'll just do the high-value ones. And so I did like 10 kilos or 15 kilos of just Lion's Mane. And that all sold. Um, but from a, from a market perspective, it seemed like people loved it when you had pink and yellow and blue and white and Lion's Mane. Blah, 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 blah. And it would make people who wouldn't normally buy stuff want to come – and get it, because it looked amazing. Um, it, I reckon it could probably work. I reckon that would certainly um, mitigate the fact that you put in a lot of hours and might not get a lot out. The obvious, obviously the trade off there is go for something more high value and the hours are worth more. Um, but obviously I think you reduce your pool of people that are probably interested in A, paying that, but B, knowing what it is you're actually selling. There was still a lot of looky-loos who would just go, oh yeah, that's interesting, I guess that's a mushroom. <laughs> well, there you go, and then they'd leave. <laughs> and you'd get that a lot. Um, so you, you go through the same little conversation again. Yes, it's a mushroom. Yes, I grew it myself. Yes, it's edible. Cool. Thanks. Okay. Bye. <laughs> so, yeah.
2: Yeah. It can be very exhausting some days. I mean, it's great when you sell out, and it, yeah. makes, it feels really, really good. But there are just some days, for whatever reason, where the whole market you're you're doing the hard sell. Well, you know, like you're talking to people about why they mm-hmm. want to eat your mushrooms, or what they taste like, and all this sort of stuff. And it, yeah, it's you think, wow, really. My
1: money, (laughs) (laughs) except just following on the lions man. Did you have you tried completely drying that? And do you think you'd get four hundred kilo for that? It it dries really well, and it crumbles to powder because the little spines are so soft and delicate. Um, If you could have a market for selling powdered lions man, maybe. Oh, but I've often found the thing that people wanted was the thing that looks like the thing that it is. They like a fresh lion's mane because it looks like a lion's mane and they like to the dried lion's mane because it looks like a lion's mane. Um, and I would often have people say, oh, I've always seen this as a powder. You know, I never trusted it's really what it is, so it's good that I can see it. And I found that was in its own right a selling point. But when you dry it, it's so, it's so like you, it crumbles apart. You get dust and then you get kind of like the, the, the corey stem bit holds together but the outside falls apart to a degree. You that
0: don't like it once a year.
1: Well, if you could sell it all, then, yeah, absolutely. Or online, certainly another way you could take it. Um, but, yeah, I, I suspect the overall pool of people would be low, at least at the, at the beginning. You'd need to cultivate that market in its own right, I suspect. I'm sorry, you had a question from before me.
0: Um, are there regulations that make it difficult to harvest mushrooms, say, in, in winter when um, it's too cold to grow them and you want to set up grow them? could you sell that
1: at the market Like wild, like wild harvesters. harvesters
0: yeah I,
1: I don't I mean
2: legally you're yeah you're not allowed to harvest from the you know yeah. public land or anything like that but if you've got a, a neighbor or a private property where they're mm. happy for you to go and harvest off their land and you um, mm. I mean you obviously have to feel very confident that you're selling something that's not poisonous. But generally, yeah. people who buy stuff like that know... I mean, I get people saying to me, I'm sure you have as well, oh, I don't know if I would eat that. <laughs> you know, and, um, yeah, yeah. There, there are regulations about wild
0: harvest. Because you see a lot of, yeah. like, there saffron milk caps at the mm. market here, and
2: mm. in our region as well, they sell them at the local fruit and veg shop. That mm.
0: Someone just bought in a box and sold it to the yeah. fruit yeah.
2: and veg. But I was wondering if there were actual restrictions legally again. Oh look! I guess oh. you'd you'd be crazy to sell something to to sell something if you didn't know that it was safe. You know, you would yeah. you would be in big trouble. The in theory, it could complement um, the businesses
1: that. You mm. That yeah. that was always that that was always my perspective as well. Was yeah, you're not you're not meant to go and harvest stuff. I've only ever heard of one person getting in trouble for it, um, but they were picking a lot of native mushrooms and showing off all the native species that they'd found and they were told stop picking natives and taking photos of them and then throwing them away. Like that's no good for anyone. Um, but yeah, you're not, you're not supposed to pick and particularly not pick and sell, but I agree with the safety thing. Like I would be uncomfortable selling anything that I didn't know where it had grown and what had gone on it. I mean, in theory it's fine, but if not and it came down to it and you couldn't, definitively say yes I picked safe mushrooms that I knew hadn't come in contact with uh, heavy metals at a roadside or contaminated field that had been dumped there or some kind of other pesticide or herbicide that had accumulated in them because you'd not grown it it's really indefensible from a from a safety point of view it might be over the top to say I would never do it but it really is indefensible because you don't know I mean, maybe that's too much, but
0: yeah. Also, there's, there's like a locational perspective. So, yeah. for Kirsty and I, where we are, like climatically, the wild, the wild harvesting options are fairly limited. So,
2: mm-hmm. and, um, on a good year, yeah, a good year we yeah, can yeah, share a lot of morels. So yeah. we could, or if we could we yeah. mushrooms where we are. Yeah. But like that, last well, year, and the other downside, of course, as well, is that in a in a regional setting. Um, the time of year, like at the moment, there's been a little bit of rain up our way, and so there have been some field mushrooms coming up. So, of course, everyone that comes to the local market is <laughs> like, don't need mushrooms this week, we've had them coming up in our paddock, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. okay. Cool. Yeah, so, yeah. Mm. But so. potentially it would be an
0: option, depending mm. on your biome and what yeah. it was around. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And certainly, I mean, there's no reason why if you uh, you couldn't try and naturalise some wild mushrooms on your own property... You know, if you, yeah, if you yeah, yeah. had access to to
1: some, um, you know, cultures or yeah. so So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's always an option as well if you've got a bit of, a bit of land. Yeah. yeah. So. I mean, we get Porcini here and the people go and find them and, and pick them and sell them for exorbitant prices. Um, and no one really tells them off for it. So it, it certainly happens, it occurs. And it certainly could complement if you knew... You were sure what you were picking was okay, and, you know that kind of thing. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah.
2: I've got two kind of like smaller questions. So one is like, have you ever like heard about economics or, or tried uh, um, doing logs commercially? Um, and the other question is like, have you ever mm-hmm. heard of or tried electro shocking as like a way to get more yields out of mushrooms? Yeah, do you know? No, I've never tried logs and I haven't heard
1: about electro No. Uh, <laughs> so over to you. Uh, yes, have tried logs. Um, much slower return. Uh, so you can really, when you optimize your particular system and you go X amount of spawn, X amount of weight at this moisture, at this temperature, um, you can dial it in pretty well to within a few days, like comfortably within a week, you know what you should be getting um logs take a lot longer like depending on the variety months six months fresh shiitake maybe 12 months that kind of thing so there's a much more of a seasonal influence and a much much longer lead time before you can actually capitalize on that it also depends what kind of wood you're going to use makes a big difference as well where and where you are like
0: would
1: be great. Mm. Uh, Valley,
0: it. yeah yeah yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. And because it takes so much longer, that would mean you'd need X amount more logs for it to really work. Because if you're going to be harvesting on a weekly basis, that means you need however many hundreds or thousands of logs. So you're not going to be storing them in a shed or a garage. It's going to be outdoors. So like you say, the environmental condition's got to be spot on. Otherwise, you will have made a huge pile of firewood pretty well. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, As for electroshocking, yeah, there's a couple of interesting papers where people went around with backpacks with car batteries and rollers to zap the ground to make the mushrooms grow. Um, I reckon in a commercial setting, if you're harvesting mushrooms on on the regs without having to zap them, you're probably doing okay anyway. I don't think that maybe that potential tiny incremental, I can make them start making mushrooms quicker or that kind of thing is really going to add up to be Mu- that much bigger of a difference in the light in light of say getting your spawn right and your substrate prep right and your picking and packing and handling right I reckon you probably and the temperature right you're going to win there well before you win with a car battery and some electrodes in, in my opinion yeah yes we've chatted about we've chatted about the moon and, and lightning and that kind of thing before yeah it's interesting because a lot of commercial shopping growers do that so there
0: must be something so there's
1: also, obviously, in addition to all that other stuff, mm-hmm. there's a little, work, a little bit of work done saying maybe, but I, th- I think you've still got to hit all your other marks before you try that. That's not going to be the magic bullet, it'll be the other stuff first. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. but yeah, that, that
2: being said, mushroom growing is extremely satisfying.
1: Oh, it's so all cool. Of us, <laughs> now that we've Good. done it, we can see how much better we could have
2: done it. Yes, um, yeah. that's, that's, a, that's mm-hmm. the thing. I mean, if someone came to me and said, I've oh, you know zillions of dollars and i want to set up a mushroom farm I'm between i think you know
0: we could all go yeah we know how yeah probably do that. help
1: you out with that yeah, <laughs> but,
0: yeah i um, think also um there's a case to be made for small growers like pooling resources yes. so yeah. i mean that didn't end up happening with us but if we could have set it up so we were all growing mushrooms and then one person distributed them mm. we would yeah. there would have been efficiencies there so that's another yeah. that would probably a bit of a geographic yeah well. yeah, yeah. But, uh, did you have much wastage of, thing of say, you go to the market and you don't mm-hmm. sell? Then did
2: you have outlets to use the, those mushrooms, or was that pretty much just lost? I just did a huge amount of bartering, and I'd go home with boxes full of all sorts of great stuff because people would just say, "Yeah, oh, I'll, I'll some mushrooms? Do you want this? You know, these parsnips or whatever." So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I never took any home um, because I just.
0: I didn't i didn't want to take them home once i'd got them to market but, but yeah we never had an issue selling mm. like we
1: always had more demand than we had supply yeah i uh, maybe a few times i would have a ridiculously bumper crop that week um and i was uh i'd, I'd luckily had uh, chefs and restaurants and wineries and stuff around that i could just call us in a text and say do you want, like, two or three kilos of mushrooms? Like, I, I want to sell them now. I'll drop them to you within the next ten minutes if you want them. Mm-hmm. And often it would only take two text messages, and then problem solved. I'd, I'd have it all done, and that would be that. I'm interested, Kirstie and Ella, if you're
0: experimenting with um, producing mushrooms without single-use plastic.
2: Yes, I have. Yeah, and I, I yeah. Near, where, near where I live, there's mm-hmm. a, an ice cream factory, Golden North. And... Um, they have all these um, white tubs with lids that they mm-hmm. get all their chocolate mm-hmm. in, so they're all food grade, and mm-hmm. they were selling them all out for 50 cents each. So we thought, oh, we'll go and get some. Mm-hmm. So we went and got 40, I think. Mm-hmm. We drilled all the holes in them, and mm-hmm. you know, so and, and just found exactly the same thing. The trade-off is that you use heaps and heaps and heaps of water cleaning them, yeah. and um, and yeah, storage and, I don't know, it just... We use we use jars for making our spawn, mm-hmm. so we we don't use any plastic there. But um, yeah, to to for commer- for commercial growing of the mushrooms, I think the plastic tubs are problematic
1: yeah. unless
0: you've got a really good water supply. Yeah,
1: yeah I agree. Um, and that, that was our
2: issue
0: is that we have mm. we have rainwater. That's it. Mm. So washing yeah. plastic tubs is just completely out of the question. Mm. Otherwise, we'd run
2: out of water. There
0: but, is a there's a guy. Um, his business is called Noosa Earth, and he has been using compostable plastic bags as grow bags. So it's yeah. not a perfect solution, but it's it's better than yeah. you know black black poly tubing, which is what we were using. Mm.
2: And I think if you were growing them for either for just for your own personal use or for a, the use of a small group of people, the plastic tubs would be absolutely yes, perfect. That'd be great. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Be a at all,
1: so. yeah I, just because of the throughput required to really make it work you would you would end up doing nothing but washing all the time as soon as the volume gets above a certain amount you just end up with stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks, and stacks of buckets that are ready to be washed ready to be emptied ready for a second wash yeah. have been contaminated previously so maybe you can use them again or maybe not yeah. maybe they'll always contaminate now because they've gone really moldy and there's little little scratches inside the buckets and maybe there's some spores in the scratches and do you really want to risk it i guess not i guess that one's dead now Next so And
2: the, the difference is um, mm. using the, the glass jars for spawn, um, you know, there's a lot of washing with that as well, but at least you know it's going to go back through the autoclave. Yeah, it so sterilised. It, it will be sterilised, whereas mm. the plastic buckets aren't. So well, you,
0: um, We did a bit of experimentation with trying to grow the making <laughs> logs out of old mm-hmm. um, mailing tubes, like to try and do it all in the cardboard, so at mm-hmm. least we could just chuck the whole thing in the compost mm-hmm. afterwards, but we never... Quite to mm. So I don't know if that like rules that out as an option, mm. but we were very busy with you know the business, and I had a baby, and it was just all too hard. So, yeah. yeah, but there's there's definitely scope to look into those non non plastic options. Mm. But mm. yeah, in the business context, it was we just couldn't come up with a better solution at that time. Mm. Mm. Um, I've seen a
2: few growers around doing like grow kits to sell and other like value added um, products. What value do you think there is in those things beyond just selling fresh machines? I, I, look, I think it's a good idea. I, I, and I, I often sort of think with all those plastic buckets that I've still got holes in them <laughs> that I could yeah. get something going in that and just at the point of fruiting, you know, sell them. Yeah. Um, and I, and I'm sure you know that would be great, but it it does actually just come down to time. You know, I just I just haven't found the time to actually do that at this stage. But I think um, I I've, I've never tried one of those grow kits myself. But a lot of people talk to me about them when they come and buy mushrooms, mm. and people have had different sort of success. Some people say, oh look, it was didn't work out, it was not good. Others no, said, no, it was great, it was fabulous. So mm.
1: um,
2: so yeah. But I think I think they certainly at the market I think I could I could
0: probably sell a few from time to time mm. Life
2: cycle has done a pretty good
1: job of capturing that
2: market yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. So, mm. Mm. with the and, and even with the coffee grounds thing a lot of people talk to me about coffee grounds <laughs> um, and coffee grounds I haven't actually tried them yet but I I think was it, we, we oh I can about talk this. all about coffee grounds and um, <laughs> yeah we, we just sort of said it's actually a, it's a great marketing um, strategy and I and look great it's, and good on them, but I don't think people realise that the coffee grounds were just an, a, a sort of nutrient additive. They still had to have other yeah. substrates. Yeah. So um, we use bran, like like Michael. We just get Michael,
0: bran, and, and,
2: mm. and big bags and yeah, yeah. put
0: it in. So. Mm. Also, I, Michael is the only one out of the three of us that lives even vaguely close enough to cafes yeah. to, yeah. to, yeah. to yeah. collect the coffee. So. And
1: yeah. I, I did that and I spent a lot of time for months and months and months like the first however long I did it before was was coffee and and shredded paper and coffee and straw and coffee and other stuff um so I'd drive around and collect I don't know 200 liters of coffee grounds and it is a massively problematic waste stream in its own right because you get teaspoons receipts broken cutlery and crockery um food leftovers like milk caps like, anything that was on a counter that was near that thing occasionally would just get scooped in, which meant that I actually had to, s- like, essentially sift all my coffee grounds. So I'd collect it all, bring it all back, and I'd have to have a, a container for each cafe because I knew some were good and some were rubbish and I needed the volume. So then I'd sift through it. Lemon, uh, good, this is a, one's full of sour cream for some reason, so that's all bung. Throw that all away. What's next in here? Dig, dig, dig. Oh, I've cut myself. Okay, someone threw in a broken cup. Great. Dig that out, put that aside, bandage up my hand, go on to the next one. Okay, teaspoon, 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 teaspoon. Wow, someone must have dropping a thing of teaspoons. Okay, teaspoon, teaspoon. Good, put that aside. It's doable, but it is uh, way variable. Um, so I probably chucked as much as I, as I used, uh, and if you get some cafes that are on board with what you're doing, great, no problem. You'll get it exactly as you need it. And if you don't, you can contaminate a whole load with a little bit.
0: You track it down if you want. Oh my God.
1: <laughs> yep, and it just covers everything. You open a lid and go poof, green spores everywhere. So, yeah, um, so yeah just kind of
2: like going off that almost. Like, um, I've read that. Um, people have had success kind of adapting strains to be better on coffee or better on certain subjects. <coughs> Do you think there's much hope for the future of, like, mushroom growing um, if people like yourselves are adapting strains to be better for the kind of conditions that you're growing mean? Yeah, definitely. Mm. I, I think... Um, and there's people in Australia who are doing that, identifying species and mm. um, having them tested out, and they're, you know, they're, they're really well-suited to different sorts of conditions. And, and I have actually... i bought a... Um, a culture um, called mountain blush from northern New South Wales which is a different climate to where we are but it's turning out to be fantastic it's really robust and and beautiful a beautiful mushroom so and and interestingly a lot of the um, chefs and other people I talk to they love the fact that it's an Australian species you know, so I think that that um, mm. there will it's a it's a, certainly a growing um, area of interest and I think um, the, the more people who are really seriously out there looking for them, identifying them, making sure they're safe, looking, you know getting getting the cultures out there, um, you know, we'll, we'll have a very thriving um, mushroom. I,
0: I actually think it's very similar to what um, Emily and Grace yeah. were talking about in the previous session with grains and locally adapted grains and getting the different varieties, yeah. in, but just in a I could really relate to what they yeah. were saying
2: um you know, and we're only a few years into our journey with this. But I, I think um, to find that, that real, you know, I mean, you obviously need to be really, really interested in mushrooms, just like they were interested in grains mm-hmm. and, and whatever. Um, I, I think, yeah, it, there's definitely a lot of potential, huge amount of potential. Um, I just, I'll, you know.
0: And it, also from a nutrition perspective, uh, you know, the proteins... and Oh. mushrooms are really
1: fabulous it's, like, it's a great food source so... it is I can't
2: recommend highly enough just having them on tap it's yeah. so, so good. <laughs> yeah. it's really yeah. good yeah Yeah. absolutely
1: yeah, so
2: I, I miss them oh, we didn't grow over summer we just decided summer can be problematic it's so hot we'll take a break and um, which, which was fantastic but oh gee I miss the mushrooms mm. they really did mm.
1: <laughs>